Let's pray. Father heaven, thank you so much that you're good to us. We thank you for this, your day. We thank you that we can gather together and consider uh, the teachings of your word. Help us to grow as we do that. Be with each one of our teachers as they bring um, a, a lesson to the kids on the pastoral epistles. And we pray to be with us as adults as we uh, grow in our knowledge of uh, your plans uh, for eternity. For us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have uh, Rachel and Harrison with us. Harrison and Rachel from, well, Rachel lives in DuPont now, but uh, Harrison, they're moving from Georgia to here. And uh, Harrison's the one that looks like Robbie there in the back, so, and they're both in the military. And um, say hi to them. Uh, uh, so Rachel's here already. Harrison's moving here in September. So keep that in mind there. All right, I want to start this week with the same public service announcement that I had last week so that um, we can, uh, and I'll probably do that a few more weeks so that we can always uh, all make sure we understand that. And as we start into more controversial uh, areas of our series on eschatology, uh, I want to make clear that this is not going to be a debate. I'm going to teach and you're going to learn. That's kind of the, uh, the approach that uh, we're going to take. Uh, the Sunday school format is not the format for debating. I'm happy to debate your uh, to debate you. I'm happy to explain more and to engage with you uh, about our, the, my position and the Bible Presbyterian Church's position on eschatology on out uh, off Sunday school. We're not going to engage in debate uh, here, though. I welcome any clarifying questions, things that are not clear. Happy to do that, but it's not a debate. Uh, during, uh, during our class. So we'll make sure that we get that. So today, we're going to start defining uh, the several different millennial systems. Uh, and the goal is not to defend any of these systems yet, but just to present the arguments for it. And then we're going to, I'm going to actually present the historic premillennialism uh, as our church's and denomination's position and what I believe to be the most biblically accurate of all positions. Every single one of these positions will leave verses out of the bucket. Now, if you consider each one of these positions a bucket and you're trying to put the Bible into these buckets, every one of them you're going to have passages in the Bible that you just can't shove into that bucket, Right? And so for me, the way I work is that which bucket leaves the least amount of verses outside? <laughs> and that's kind of what... Uh, uh, so that's, all, all, that's to say that none of these positions, to me, are 100% satisfying. So it, it, it's, a, it's more of a... Which one, which one is the least unsatisfying <laughs> uh, position there? Um, and I'm going to define them as they are classically defined in systematic theology books. And the reason for that is that each one of these positions are going to have as many different definitions as there are people who hold them. I'm going to start by defining the all-millennial position, and you're going to say, I'm an all-millennialist, and I don't believe in that. That's fine, but that's what everybody else that matters does believe. So that's, that's uh, the position we're going to uh, look at. Does it make sense? The, the, everybody's going to have a little nuanced position. So... Um, I'm trying to find what is the standard classical position and then define that uh, to you uh, this, this morning. Uh, 
you see the different names. Um, they, they all have the word millennium, millennial in it. doesn't mean that uh, it's about the generation uh, of the millennials, but it's about its relation to the thousand years that's referred to in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And they, have, they all relate to the, the return of Jesus Christ in relation to that thousand years. And that's why the word millennial, which just means a thousand in Latin, is in each one of these words. All right? Any questions about what I have already said so far? Okay. Lois, remember, it's not a debate. Just, okay, just making sure that... We're going to start with the all-millennial position. Uh, and uh, all the pictures are different renditions from famous uh, painters or authors of the last times, of the end and times there. The, I'm going to start with this one because, well, start with an A, so it comes first in the alphabet, but it's also the one most widely held in Reformed world today, the amillennial position. Um, and the main uh, impact of it, the main uh, um, driving force behind this position is that there is no physical reign of Christ on, on this earth. There's no physical future reign of Christ, which the premillennial position and the postmillennial position both hold to a future physical reign of, of Christ. And they look at the Old Testament uh, covenants and promises um, differently, and they believe that these promises made in the Old Testament to Israel do not find their fulfillment in a future thousand-year uh, millennium. They, they say that they fall into a few categories, about three or four categories. They say that a lot of these promises that are in the Old Testament were conditional. So if-then sort of problems. So if the if didn't happen, then the then part won't happen either. So they don't have to worry about them. They say that some already literally were fulfilled, at least partially. For example, they talk about the land promises. Remember how Abraham was, was told that the part of the Abrahamic covenant he's going to receive... Uh, a, a large portion of land and so on and then that's reiterated in the covenant with Moses where again Israel said to, to receive uh, a, a large portion of land well Amlana says that these land promises all have been fulfilled and they look at passages like Joshua twenty three fourteen, where it says behold this day I am going the way of all the earth and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. So they look at that. See, Joshua says that all the promises have been fulfilled. Therefore, uh, nothing. So all the promises before this time, including the land, has been fulfilled. You don't have to worry about some future fulfillment of that. There's problems with that because if you actually look at some of the promises, for example, one of the promises that in Deuteronomy is that uh, the Lord is going to raise a prophet like unto me, Moses says, to lead you. And the New Testament says it's a reference to Christ. Therefore, that promise could not have been fulfilled. So we can't, we can't see Joshua here meaning every last single promise. Uh, but they look at this passage and says, see, all the land promises have been fulfilled. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, Nehemiah 9.8, where Nehemiah is praying, says, You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words 
for you are righteous. So here Nehemiah says, you have performed those words. Therefore, that land promise is done. So they say conditional promises, that's not going to happen because the if part's not true. Other promises have been already literally fulfilled. Then they also say that uh, a lot of the promises that we read in the Old Testament are fulfilled spiritually during the present age of the church, that they are not a reference to any physical entity, but is, is happening in heaven. Actually, the thousand-year millennium, thousand-year reign that's described in Revelation, they say, is actually happening right now in heaven. And there will be no impact, physical impact, other than the church preaching the gospel here uh, today. Uh, for example, they look at passages like um, uh, Luke 17, which says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Or will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God within, is within you. So here, say, see, you can't see it, therefore it can't be a physical millennium, the physical kingdom. That's, that's one of the arguments they make. Or they say that these promises are only about eternity. So they look at uh, um, a passage like uh, Revelation 20, and, uh, which says, uh, I saw in verses 4 through 6, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Lord of, the, of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years and so on and the Almalena says that we are now living between verses 4 and 5 right uh, we're living in that little period there in this period of this is a thousand years and then uh, that coming to life is a spiritual coming to life. And uh, that's all that there is to it. So that's how they look at the Old Testament uh, promises there. Now, of course, a lot of them disagree with themselves uh, in what promises fall under what category. But they, they, but they do agree that none of them refers to a future literal kingdom on the earth prior to the resurrection of the unjust. None of them would hold to that, any of those promises. Well, it, uh, there's a, a man by the name of William Hendrickson wrote a commentary. And said, there's a little variation with him, but he's not a standard position for amillennialism. Any, any questions about what I've said so far? Adam. How, Newton. How would the, how would the amillennialists... Amillennialists. How would they, how would they answer... It? that early Christians who were beheaded were beheaded more than a thousand years ago? Well, the, 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 they don't get hung up on the, the, the thousand years being a literal thousand years. It's, they say, and there's some point to it that in Hebrew literature, large numbers are meant to just mean a long period of time. It doesn't have to be a thousand years. So they say, that that's, the thousand years just saying it's going to be a long time. That's all. Yes, Adam. With Ezekiel's second new temple, would that be an if-then? So, yeah, so all these positions that I'm going to present look at the Ezekiel second temple, you know, the most boring part of Ezekiel when you're reading through the last, what, eight chapters of the book as an if-then. You know, if you had been faithful to us, Israel, to God, you'd have this, but you weren't, therefore you don't. Yeah. 
any other questions before we continue? Now, that's not the only, the, the, the worship of Old Testament promises to the future is not the only part that, the only thing that all millennialism teach. They also teach that there's only one resurrection. There's a general resurrection. Uh, one single resurrection of both the just and the unjust without any significant time delay between them. So at the return of Christ, both the just and the unjust would be risen. And that's a commonality between the all-millennial position and the post-millennial position as well. So uh, the premillennial position sees that there will be a resurrection of the righteous at the coming of Jesus Christ and then the resurrection of the unrighteous at the end of that millennial period there. Um, and then um, they define the millennium as what I would explain here to Adam as just a present Unde- a present period, so we are in it, of undetermined <clears throat> length. That's what the millennium is, a, pr- a present period of an undetermined length. Um, so it could have been a thousand years, it could, it could be ten million years, whatever that is. This, we are in it, and it's really only clearly visible in heaven with the, the, the souls. That's where Christ is reigning is in heaven, and on, in this world, his presence is through his, his church. And that's why the name comes from all millennium. means the word ah is called an alpha privative. It denies what follows, um, like um, uh, agnostic or amoral. It denies what follows. So no millennium is what the title amillennialism means there. And they use other arguments to say that the spiritual reality is more important than the physical reality. They look at the verse like 2 Corinthians 4.18, where it says, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They say, see, God focused on the spiritual. He's not interested in this future physical uh, reign. But the problem with that, that uh, eternity... The eternal state is a physical state. We're going to have physical bodies forever and worship the Lord. And that's agreed upon all positions. The Amalanists believe in that as well. So uh, it kind of goes against their emphasis on saying that the spiritual is more important than uh, um, the, the physical. Uh, they, they, they refer to what Jesus says in John 18, 36 and 37, where Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who, hears, who, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And he says, My kingdom is not of this world. And the Amalek says, See, he's not interested in a physical kingdom here is a kingdom that's not from uh, this world. And then they say that, that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament to teach a non-millennial view of future events. Uh, they look at, for example, Luke 4, 17-19. Jesus is a pastor. Jesus comes to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's handed the scroll of uh, Isaiah, and he um, um, folds it to Isaiah 61, and he reads Isaiah 61, and then he sits down, and he says that all these things are fulfilled in your, in your hearing right today. 
And so, and so the Almighty, see, all the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled solely on the first coming of Jesus Christ. They, they, yes, Doug. That's fine. I'm going to the next passage. Um, what, is there an origin for amillennialism as a system? I mean, would there be you know, current day amillennialists that look back to an early church father? Or... Yeah, that's my last portion. Okay. We may or may not get to it today, but it's included. We get to it at some point in the future, right? And probably it would be better even after the surgery, so we'll have a nice you know, drugs and everything will make sense uh, by then. Uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 is another passage that they look. Uh, that's when Peter quotes Joel 2, 38 to 21. And he, he quotes a, a prophetic section there dealing with the last days and applies it to the pouring out of the Spirit in Pentecost. Now, I, I encourage you to look at Acts 2, 16 through 21, and compare it to Joel 2, 38 to, 30, uh, 2, to 31. You'll notice that Peter leaves one clause out from the quote. He quotes everything but one clause, and that clause makes a big difference, as we'll see in the future. Another passage they turn to look at how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament is Acts 15, you know what's going on there in Acts 6.15 is the Jerusalem Council. Uh, the Peter and Paul came and argued their position. Then others argued their position. The Council of Elders decided what was the right position. They write uh, a conclusion. And James the Elder, not James the Apostle, is the, the one that announces what the position is. And in Acts 15, verses 15 through 18, he quotes from Amos 9, 11 and 12. And which is a prophecy about the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. And there he says that um, it's been fulfilled in their days and there will be no future Davidic king sitting on David's throne. Uh, there's a couple other passages, but we're not going to... You look at Romans 9, 25-26, when again they quote Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Paul applies that to the salvation of the Gentiles. Um, Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, where there the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, which is the longest continuing uh, quotation from the Old Testament in the New Covenant. And, and they say, see, they say the entirety of the New Covenant is being fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, and therefore there's no future fulfillment of it. So that's one the argument they use um, is that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament to be only a spiritual application, no physical application. And then they say the church is spiritual Israel, which is not a single... uh, They're not the only ones that believe that. All three positions believe that. It's just in different degrees, but all three positions believe that this is the case. But they believe that uh, the church is... There's no, nothing promised to, generally, there's nothing promised to Israel still left on the table. Um, I don't know why I repeated this. Let me see if it's here. Yeah, I already talked about the general resurrection, the idea that uh, there be Christ returns, there's only one generation, uh, resurrection of uh, the just and the unjust, all at the same time. They look at Daniel 2, 12, 2, Matthew 25, and so on to justify that. And, but then when they come to Revelation 20, if you look at verse 5, the word lived is used there, 
and they say there has to be spiritual, cannot be a real resurrection, even though just uh, 11 words later the word lived is used again, and they say this must be physical, it cannot be spiritual. So there's some issues there as well. And then they say that millennialism is unhealthy. The idea of a future kingdom, earthly kingdom, is unhealthy. It exalts carnal pleasures over spiritual holiness. It mixes glorified saints with unglorified sinful people in a supposed glorious kingdom. Right? Because in the, at least in the, in the post-millennial position, uh, or in the premillennial position, you're going to have resurrected, glorified people living alongside people who have not yet been, uh, who are sinful. Sin still be present during that time. And say, how can that be? Uh, Primalanus would respond and say, hey, the, that was true in the garden. Uh, Adam, Adam and Eve as sinful human beings were not expelled immediately from the garden. There's some time that lapsed between their fall and their being expelled from uh, the garden. Uh, they say that uh, this future kingdom exalt Judaism over universal Christianity, but often when they make that argument, they are confusing historic premillennialism with, um, with uh, dispensational premillennialism. If that doesn't make sense to you, hopefully in a few weeks will make sense to you when we talk about that. Any questions so far? Tilly. No, no, it's the most negative of all views. Yes. Amillennialism, the church is going to be apostate, the world is not going to get any better, and everything is going to literally go to to hell in a handbasket. It's really the the least positive view for this this world. And for me, it's the least attractive biblically. I know that a bunch of you are amillennialists, but uh, this is the least attractive position biblically, and then in, in just the outcome of life as well. I call it the Eeyore position of eschatology. So, any other, any other questions before we... All right. Um, nope. Go back. Stop. Siri, stop. No, it doesn't stop. <laughs> Wait, anyway. Well, um, I thought I had one other slide. Oh, yeah, it just says Amillennial heritage. Um, Amillennialism is the prevalent eschatological position in, among Reformed and Presbyterians today. The, that, that's the prevalent position uh, all over the world. Uh, and that's, uh, that's easy. It's a fact. It can be shown that. And it has the uh, 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 a, um, honorable history of exegetes and theologians. Uh, and to answer Doug's question, the, the, most of amillennialism is drawn or find its origin with Augustine. Uh, was the bishop of Hippo in North Africa, which today is Tunisia, uh, in the late 300s, early 400s. And he is the one that dominated the scene with the amillennialist scene uh, from that time on, and from Augustine on, the church as a whole, through the Middle Ages, became a non-millennial church. And to this day, the Roman Catholic Church is still a non-millennial uh, church. Uh, and then the Reformation, uh, Luther still remained a non-millennialist. Calvin remained a non-millennialist. 
uh, and several of the big name reformers or uh, millennialists. There was a shift when once we came to the Puritan age in England and the actually formulating of the Westminster standards in which uh, amillennialism decreased in influence and histor uh, historic premillennialism and postmillennialism became equal thirds in the Puritan scene there. But it's, it has an honorable history of exegetes and theologians drawing really to uh, Augustine being the first one who systematized. Now, Origen, which pre predates Augustine, also held on millennialism, but he was not a good systematizer. There's organizer, and Augustine was, and he's the one that actually formulated the thoughts that people could actually follow that. Any questions? Doug? Was there a So the, the question is, when you came to a thousand, so that the, uh, when you came to a thousand, thousand AD, was that a revamping of a more uh, of belief of a more physical fulfillment of these prophecies because of the thousand years come? Yes. If you go back in church in searching church history, you're going to see what's called the Chiliastic movement. Uh, millennium is a Latin word for a thousand. Chilios is the Greek word for a thousand. And uh, the idea of a future kingdom is often talk about chiliasm. And in, 900, in the 900s, there was a revival of, of, of chiliasm uh, because of the change of the calendar. Uh, and I'm assuming similar to the 2000 change. But the funny thing is that the, the, all the hype in the 2000s was led by post-millennialists, not by pre-millennialists uh, there. But in the early church, the early church, and that's accepted by most positions, the early church was primarily a premillennial church. It's just a fact, historical fact. It's not, I don't think you can say it's either good or bad, but, but because there's a lot of things that the early church believed that were, was really bad. So, but it's, was, that was the majority position that Christ would establish a thousand-year reign. Uh, and then that slowly stopped as they distanced in time from the New Testament and an all-millennial position became more prevalent to the time when Ezebius of Caesarea, which is the first church historian was in, in place, he really poo-pooed the book of Revelation because he did not like this chiliasm idea, the idea of a thousand-year reign, but he didn't have a way to explain that to Augustine actually formulated a system that would work with that being a spiritual kingdom. Any other questions? So my goal for this morning was to define all three views. Uh, we, arrived, we finished one, and we have four minutes uh, left. So I, uh, we could start on the post-millennial view, but uh, uh, if you have, I prefer answer any lingering question, then start and then restart again uh, next week. Adam Newton. Will you talk more about the temple later? Um. Yes, I will talk more about the temple and I will explain why there's no need for a future temple. In that context, I'll talk about the temple. Yes. Anything else? Nick? Who would be the main proponent of the So, pretty much any Reformed systematic theology. Uh, so, Burkhoff. Well, I shouldn't say that. 
Burkhoff, uh, Robert Raymond, which is the current systematic theology reformer. Um, uh, many of the uh, um, Calvin is um, even though he doesn't have a chapter necessarily on it, his amillennialist uh, Luther's writings. Um, um, oh, William Hendrickson is the closest to living. Uh, uh, Art Sproul was amillennialist, but he's not living either. Um, Doug, do you have any idea? Uh, Sam Storms, I don't know if you know, I, I know he's reformedish, is amillennialist, and he kind of looks like Doug. So it's a. Uh, <laughs> don't you think, Mrs. Bond? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Doug is cuter. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Lois. No. So if you're amillennialist, is over here. John MacArthur is like a 10,000 million miles on the other side. Yes, but not theologically. Yeah. Link them as being the exact opposite, <laughs> except for in the core doctrines of Christianity. So, yeah. No, MacArthur is, no, he comes this close to saying that all, all millennials are going to go to hell, sort of thing. He doesn't quite say that, but uh, he is dead against uh, all millennialism. So, uh, all right. Was it a hand, Carol, or was not? So, if Vodibox is on, see, that's the thing. If Vodibox is on millennials, he's an inconsistent theologian because it's, it's almost impossible to be a Baptist and an all millennialist. It, it, they exist. I'm not saying they don't exist. But theologically, is a big inconsistency. Because you do need the church to be Israel. And yet, you're a Baptist because you can't see the connection between Israel and the church. That's the only reason, really, to be a, to be a Baptist. So those two things cannot... They're not consistent. People believe them, but they're not, they're not uh, consistent. All right? Okay, so we'll close in prayer, and then we'll pick up on post-millennialism next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Father, thank you that we can come together and talk. We pray that uh, this, these lessons will be uh, uh, helpful to all of us as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.